Today's April 16th, 2021. Democrats announced plans to pack the Supreme Court. A House panel votes to advance a bill on slavery reparations. And conservatives cry foul in the Derek Chauvin case. I'm your host, Austin Taylor, and this is Split the Difference Podcast. Here we take a look at both sides of the political aisle as we try to bridge the gap between today's biggest issues. Remember, times may be divisive and we may not always agree, but together we can stay level-headed, be reasonable, and always split the difference. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends. Split the Difference family, we got another fan Fantastic episode for you here today, finishing the week out strong, looking at all of the good and bad on both sides of the aisle and doing our best to split the difference and find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. We've got a lot to cover today, so without further ado, we'll go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, the Democrats came out yesterday and announced that they are planning to propose a bill that would increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Their plan is to, in the legislation that they're proposing, to take the Supreme Court justice number from 9 to 13 justices, which has been the number that has been set since 1869, uh, nine justices, that is. Uh, This, of course, would tilt the favor of the court in a progressive direction. There's a reason why they are choosing the number 13. It is because, currently, with where it sits, there are six conservative justices on the Supreme Court and only three more liberal or left-leaning justices. By adding or increasing the number to 13, that would allow for Biden to have four picks, which would then, of course, tilt the favor of the court in the direction of the Democrats and the more progressive. So uh, let's go ahead and hop in real quick. This is Fox News reporting on this uh, yesterday. Fox News alert, and this is big. The Intercept reported moments ago House and Senate Democrats are planning to unveil new legislation later this week that would officially expand the U.S. Supreme Court by adding four new seats that would take it from nine justices to 13 justices. The effort reportedly being led by House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler and Senator Ed Markey. Joining me now to react to this breaking news is Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News at night. Shannon, this is some incredible breaking news. We knew this would probably Mm -hmm. happen, uh, but we didn't think it would be this quickly. What do you know? Yeah, we have we know that there is this commission that President Biden has set up to study all kinds of things with the judiciary about including expanding courts and with their seats, that kind of thing. But what we're seeing now is actually something being done at the legislative uh, branch, where in Congress they're talking about trying to expand the Supreme Court. Now, listen, it hasn't been done since 1869. The Constitution does not outline exactly how many justices there have to be at any one time. The court started with six, and the theory has always been that the founders thought it wouldn't be used to decide really tough questions on a regular basis. Okay, so... Uh, This would, if it actually got passed, have an incredibly dramatic uh, impact on a lot of things. Uh, The Supreme Court is where the buck stops with the courts in America. If a law is contested and it moves up the various lower courts, uh, it eventually will end up in front of the Supreme Court and what they say goes. Uh, In all reality, they really, I mean, they shouldn't be political at all. That was not the goal. The goal was for them to simply be judges that wanted to uphold the Constitution. Constitution by whatever means possible. 
Um, the problem is that over the past four to five decades, the Supreme Court has increasingly been seen as almost an extension of the legislative branch in a lot of ways. Both parties have been have, have wanted to be able to tilt the court in one direction or the other because they believe that it will have a much longer lasting effect than any legislation that has passed. Uh, this is mainly because a Supreme Court justice is a lifetime appointment. So if a president is leaning one way or the other, they pretty much cherry pick the appointment that they want. They look at the record of the judge, uh, how long they've been a judge or how long they were a lawyer and have worked in law in the past uh, and seeing basically looking at that judge's rulings or values and see if they line up with what they would want as the president for the court to uphold. Uh, They then nominate them for that position. A Senate then confirms or denies whether or not the appointment will be confirmed. Uh, the reason why it's the Senate and not the House is because it was done for a very specific reason. Uh, they, the founders viewed it as something that each state should have an equal say in. Uh, so it shouldn't be done by the House because the House is done based upon uh, population proportionality within the United States. Um So progressives have been very upset over the past couple of years uh, because they've absolutely hated the fact that Donald Trump got so many judicial appointments. He effectively completely flipped the Supreme Court in a much more conservative direction. Um, And the left side of the aisle has thrown around ways to be able to counter that without uh, having to basically just wait for the full term of the appointments to actually, you know, come and go. Uh, Because all three of the appointments that Trump made are all pretty young, whether it was Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, or... um, Amy Coney Barrett, all of them are are relatively young, especially in terms of the, the age of the other Supreme Court justices there. So just to be clear, there's nothing illegal about increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court. I've heard a lot of fodder and a lot of stuff on the right side of the aisle that like basically they're just You know, they can't do this. They're not allowed to do this. How in the world can they think that they can do this? Uh, As you heard in the video earlier, the Constitution does not specifically outline a certain number of people that are on the Supreme Court. However, the goal here is incredibly clear. Right now, the Democrats have the majority in the House. They have the majority in the Senate. And they also have the presidency. If they were able to get this passed, uh, Biden would immediately get four judicial appointees that he could put up for nomination. Uh, The nominees would only need a simple majority in the Senate to be confirmed. So in theory... If this actually got passed, they would then be able to push through uh, as progressive of, you know, of judicial appointees as they, as they wanted, right? They could, they could get whatever they wanted in. Um, the thing that really is amazing, though, and we talked about this a little bit early on in our podcasting journey here, because when I first started uh, back in October, Amy Coney Barrett was really just being like talked about, and Trump was planning on nominating her, and he, he did obviously nominate her, and she was confirmed. Um, there was a lot of it's it's incredible how political uh, Supreme Court justices and their nominations have gotten over the past couple of decades. Um, even if you look just look back just into the '90s, okay, the vast majority of the Supreme Court appointments were uh, were not confirmed by like sweeping margins. All right, most of the time by 80 or 90 votes within the Senate. The last two Supreme Court justices were confirmed strictly upon upon party lines, right? 
So uh, both parties see and recognize like how incredibly important uh, these judicial nominees are uh, because they, they pretty much decide uh, what is going to be allowed to continue to be passed within legislation uh, over the next, you know, probably foreseeable decades. Uh, a few other things that uh, would have to take place in order for this to happen, though. First, they would have to kill the Senate filibuster completely, uh, which, of course, would absolutely outrage not just Republicans, but also a lot of moderate Democrats the like, uh, because in order to pass the legislation right now, they would have to have 60 total votes in order to get past the filibuster threshold. Uh, if you do not have that, the minority party can simply say that they want to filibuster the legislation and it pretty much gets killed before it actually goes to a vote. Second, they would also have to convince the moderate Democrats in the House and the Senate to vote for it. Uh, with this being something that is widely unpopular nationwide, it would be a very difficult thing to do. Uh, third, Biden would have to sign off on it as well. So Biden has not been open to packing the courts uh, in the past. He's actually spoken about it actively on several occasions. Um, he, of course, may bow to progressive pressure. That obviously can happen. Uh, it has happened so far in Biden's administration. Uh, but this would be something I think that would be pretty difficult for him to swallow. So what does the left have to say and what does the right have to say? The left, so far far-leaning left progressives, are very, very excited about this because they see this as sticking to their promises of trying to combat conservatives in the judicial system. Uh, much of the far-left really does see the judicial system as an extension of the legislative branch. Pretty much we need to get what we want passed by whatever means possible. Um, and they need, they want and need to be able to control the Senate and uh, obviously the judiciary in order to be able to do that. Moderate Democrats are absolutely terrified about this. So if this actually goes to a vote, all of the moderate Democrats will then have to put their name down on a sheet of paper saying whether or not they voted for it. If they do not vote for it, it will absolutely infuriate the far left because they didn't fall in line. And if they actually do vote for it, uh, it's going to look very, very bad to their constituents, especially in states like, you know, uh, constituencies under like Kristen Cinema or Joe Manchin out of West Virginia uh, in very, very purple districts where they're honestly getting voted in by people that are very, very middle of the aisle and do not support court packing at all. Okay. So the right, the right is equal parts infuriated by this and equal parts overjoyed that this has the potential to go to a vote. So the view is a clear, they, the, a lot of the right views this as an incredibly clear example of how far left the left side of the aisle has actually gone and think that this would fire up the American people and their constituents to go out and vote next November, not next, not this coming November, but the November after that in 2022, to actually go out and vote in the midterms. Uh, there's no doubt that the vast majority of Americans are still you know, middle to middle right in a lot of ways. Uh, they don't necessarily support Trump and how far right he is obviously, but they definitely don't support extreme far-left progressivism either, okay? And Republicans are wanting this to go to a floor to a vote, so every single person that votes for it can have their names plastered all over every single ad and commercial possible heading into uh, November 2022. So already, the Judicial Crisis Network, it's a conservative political organization, is already planning to launch a $1 million three-week ad campaign specifically targeting this bill and it hasn't even gone to vote yet, right? <laughs> if they, You know that if this thing actually goes to vote, the Republicans are going to be jumping all over it. Personally, I think it's an absolutely terrible idea. Uh, the, politi the politicization of the courts is something that's been happening for a couple decades now. Coming from the left, 
and from the right, contrary to what many right-wingers would like you to think. Uh, it's not just the left that wants to politicize the high courts. It is also the right side of the aisle as well. Um, I do not like the Supreme Court being used as a political football by any stretch of the imagination. That is not how it was designed, and that is not at all how it should operate. Uh, if progressives want to flip the court, uh, then they need to have presidents that are left-leaning, that get voted into power, and they need to take control of the Senate. That's how they should do it. And they need to wait until those occupancy, until the Supreme Court seats are unoccupied. That's how I think it should be done because that's historically how it's been done. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, the House Judiciary Committee voted 25 to 17 on Wednesday, all of those voting against it, being Republicans, to create a commission to study reparations for people that are descendants of slaves in America. Uh, the legislation would establish a commission to examine slavery and discrimination in the United States from 1619 to the present. So basically from the time, from the very, very beginning, all the way up through now. Uh, the commission would then recommend ways to educate, this is according to NBC News, to educate Americans about its findings and appropriate remedies, including how the government would offer a formal apology and what form of compensation should be rewarded. So this is still in the very early stages. Normally what happens with these sorts of things, a commission will be granted uh, by a panel, by a committee within the House um, to be able to go out and to do some research into a specific you know, sect or specific thing that they want to be able to write some legislation on. Then who is on the commission has to be decided. So normally the party that has the majority ends up sitting with more people uh, that they want on the commission. And the commission puts together their findings, the legislators pick it up, they put together a bill or they redraft an old bill uh, that was put in. The bill will then go to a vote, and only after it is passed in the House and the Senate will it go for the signing of the president. So a quick little civics lesson there for you. All that to say, though, this is still in the very, very early stages. So it's not the first time that legislation or research has been conducted to look into reparations. Uh, the first bill, commonly referred to as H.R. 40, was first introduced by uh, Representative John Conyers. Uh, he's a Democrat out of Michigan in 1989, Okay, so over 30 years ago. The 40 refers to the failed government effort to provide 40 acres of land to newly freed slaves following the Civil War's closing. So uh, this is the bill that right now is being kind of picked back up and used as the foundations for what they would look at uh, to pass now. Um, so Jared Nadler, 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 uh, representative, uh, uh, he's in the House of Representatives. He's a Democratic chairman of the committee that approved the commission said this, quote, This legislation is long overdue. H.R. 40 is intended to begin a national conversation about how to confront the brutal mistreatment of African Americans during shadow slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and the enduring structural racism that remains endemic to our society today. Uh, which is a huge point that the left really has been pushing for a long time in order to get certain legislation passed, okay? And now they feel like, uh, they have the firepower to be able to get it done in the wake of the George Floyd death last year and the huge amount of conversations and protests and different things that have been happening over the past couple of months, uh, specifically around race. So we also covered a story on our podcast last month uh, coming out of Chicago, really more out of Evanston, right, which is right outside of Chicago, uh, being the first city in America to pay some sort of reparations to blacks in their community. So... 
in Chicago for a quick refresher. Uh, they're doing it in the form of giving black residents that are descendants of people that lived in the community and suffered under Jim Crow era laws, a $25,000 towards homeownership in, uh, uh, for specifically for housing. Okay. Their ancestors would have had to have lived in Evanston, Illinois between 1919 and 1969 in order to qualify. And they have to also prove that they suffered from the laws that were in place. Okay. So, uh, reparations have seen an increasing amount of support over the past few decades and really have come into light over the past couple of years. Actually last year, there was a huge, um, basically a big kind of question and answer and, and a whole bunch of stuff that happened, uh, within Congress, uh, talking about reparations where they called a, a variety of different witnesses. I think that actor Danny Glover was there and writer Ta-Nehisi Coates also came in and spoke as well. Uh, many on the left view it as pretty much the only way to be able to compensate blacks in America for the oppression that their ancestors felt in the past, uh, because many of the people and their families were stripped of opportunities, uh, unfairly, and it was all done and promulgated by the hand of the United States government. So what does the left think? The left, for the most part, is wholly in support of these types of measures, which is interesting because uh, even when that legislation was in introduced in the late 80s, uh, this was actually not something uh, that the vast majority of the Democratic Party supported. It was really kind of just a fringe portion of the Democratic Party. Today, though, it, it, it gets a lot more support from the entirety of the Democratic caucus. Uh, many on the left believe that the United States should be held accountable for the subjugation of black people for so many years. And this argument isn't just because they think that, you know, black people deserve it because they were, you know, they were abused or they were mistreated. Uh, contrary to many of the views of reparations from the right, uh, or maybe characterizations of the arguments on the left from the right, uh, there is a somewhat constitutional argument for it uh, that is being proposed by a lot of people on the left. And much of it comes out of the Fifth Amendment. So there's a portion of the Fifth Amendment that states that government can't take property without paying or compensating at an appropriate market value, okay? Basically, you're not allowed to have, uh, you know, your property or your ability to be able to, you know, have that money in your pocket uh, unfairly or unjustly by the United States government unless you're compensated for it. Although this is a little bit of a stretch under constitutional law, many argue that the government allowed for the unfair taking of land and property from blacks throughout America, and as a result, they should be justly compensated for it. Because the people are no longer alive that this would have happened to, uh, or if they are alive, they're incredibly old, um, it should be given to their descendants as a result. So they have argued that the effects of these laws, like Jim Crow era laws, and especially slavery as well, can still be felt today because of the generational wealth building uh, that blacks have had no opportunity to participate in up until the last about 50 years or so. So there's no denying the fact that uh, blacks, by almost every statistic financially, on average are significantly behind their white counterparts. Uh, and the left argues that this is a direct result of systemic and institutional racism promulgated by the government, and as a result, the government should be held responsible. So the right. The right sees this as something that not only shouldn't be happening, uh, but also as somewhat of a facade uh, for something more sinister, okay? So the right has a couple of arguments against this. First, there's no real way to be able to calculate how much each person should deserve to get. Uh, because it's been decades since the end of Jim Crow and 150 years or more since the institution of slavery was ended, uh, many on the right say that it is impossible to be able to figure out what a fair or just compensation would actually be. 
Second is deciding who all would be entitled to it. As many of you know, America is a melting pot in a lot of ways. There are a lot of people that have descendants that were black, but also descendants that are white as well. How do you decide who would get the reparations then? Do people of mixed races not count towards it because technically they had white ancestors? Or what about blacks in America that are doing very well for themselves? Do they also get paid reparations even though many of them have overcome or their parents have had to overcome uh, racist legislation? There's a bunch of different nuances and difficulties to that. Uh, thirdly, is that this is a fake aid for government-mandated wealth redistribution. And I think this is one of the, the bigger sticking points for conservatives. Uh, wealth distribution redistribution forced by the government is a core pillar of Marxism, okay? If you want to know a definition of Marxism in so many ways, it literally is just class warfare and redistribution of wealth. Those are like the two, the big two core pillars of Marxism, okay? The right looks at pretty much any attempt by the left to redistrib redistribute wealth um, as, you know, basically paramount to wanting to, you know, slowly but surely implement Marxist ideology within uh, the, the government of America. So lastly, no one alive today owns slaves. This is a big argument on the right as well. Uh, the vast majority of the people alive today didn't also didn't vote for or willingly participate in Jim Crow laws either. So why should modern day Americans have to pay for it? Um, I, 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 don't see any reparations bill being able to get passed in the honestly either the House or the Senate. I think that it would have to be uh, an incredibly unique situation, an incredibly unique piece, um, a bill or piece of legislation in order for that to get passed. No way the Republicans bite on it by any stretch at all. Um, so it's it's going to be, I think, like a lot of legislation that we're seeing right now. I think a lot of the left is trying to push very progressive legislation, and the Republicans are basically just trying to stonewall it in the Senate so that it can't get passed. I think you'll see something very similar to this as well um, if it actually ends up going for a vote. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So for our third story, we're going to try not to spend too much time on this one, uh, but basically conservatives cry foul um, in the Derek Chauvin case. So the Derek Chauvin trial proceeds on with many more witnesses being called, more experts being questioned, and uh, more people weighing in on what they think the outcome of this is actually going to be. At this point, it's starting to wind down a little bit, though. I think it'll likely be wrapping up here in the next probably coming two weeks. Um, but there's been a growing concern on the right that the defense team that, you know, representing Derek Chauvin is not receiving equal treatment. Okay. Many have said that the judge is allowing for the prosecution to get away with more things that he's been, you know, that they've been allowed much more leeway. And because of the circumstances within Minneapolis right now, there's no way that a jury can judge the facts of the case fairly. Okay. So popular conservative pundits like Ben Shapiro over the past couple of days have voiced concern over really about five things. Okay. The first was that the judge refused to allow for the case to be tried outside of Minneapolis, which at this point, is a hotbed of racial tension, not only due to the Floyd protests that took place in the uh, for months and months last year, but also due to the shooting of Dante Wright, which took place earlier this week. Uh, second is that uh, the first week was filled with witnesses called by the prosecution that were not experts, but were instead people meant to stir up the emotions of the people in the courtroom. 
Uh, the third thing that uh, conservatives are not liking is that the judge reinstated the third-degree murder charge. Fourth is that the judge is barring the defense from calling a witness to the stand. Uh, basically, the defense is wanting to call George Floyd's drug dealer uh, who was in the car with George Floyd when everything took place, presumably because the defense believes that it will back up their argument that Floyd was extremely high on fentanyl and different drugs. Uh, lastly, uh, there's no evidence that all of this was done based upon lit, uh, based upon race. So the left touting this as an example of systemic racism is unfounded. So a lot of conservatives are basically saying that this judge is very pro-prosecution. -pro I'm not sure why that's the line that the conservatives are taking on this one. Pretty much if the left says something, the conservatives feel like they have to say the exact opposite. Um, but it's what's being said, so we're going to talk about it. So we're going to break that down a little bit. Uh, first, the judge have, has every right to decide whether or not the case should be tried under the city and under the that the you know the crime took place in the jurisdiction and that it's under the jurisdiction of right. If the judge thought that that was the place that it should be tried, then that's where it will be tried. Okay, this is why you have a trained and qualified judge in place. Okay, Peter Cahill. The judge that is presiding over the case was the Republican governor's appointee back in 2007. He has years of experience in law. He's 64 years old. He's been around the block. He's more than qualified to preside over this case and to decide whether or not it should be moved somewhere else. Okay, I have a hard time believing that a somewhat conservative justice appointed by a Republican governor just wants to throw out due process of the law and just hand the case to the prosecution. What? Second, the prosecution can call whatever witnesses they want. If they want to start the, start off the trial by appealing to the emotions of the jurors because that's how they feel they can win the case, they're well within their right to do that. Okay? That's how they want to take it. That's how they should do it. Third, uh, the judge believed that reinstating the third-degree murder charge was well within the scope of the case. Okay? And it arguably absolutely is. That's why you have the case, okay? And that's why it's being tried. If they were not able to prove that Derek Chauvin should be convicted of third-degree murder, then he won't be. That's how the law works. Fourth, the judge is not allowing the calling of the drug dealer as a witness. His reasoning behind this is in order around like not allowing him to come in is because if he did, they would have to grant him immunity. They would have to grant the drug dealer immunity from being tried for an, another crime, okay? Uh, and if he got in there and he basically said that he sold or gave George Floyd enough drugs to kill himself and basically implicated himself in the killing of George Floyd, then of course Derek Chauvin would get off and there's no way that the drug dealer would ever be able to be held accountable for that because they would have to grant him immunity. So, fifth, no evidence that was no evidence that this was based upon race. Uh, this is probably one of the bigger arguments on the right right now coming from conservatives. Uh, they point at the death of George Floyd and they basically say, "Hey, Derek Chauvin wasn't treating Floyd like that because he was black. He was doing like that because he was a criminal. So it isn't an example of racism and it shouldn't be treated as such." The reason why so many black people were protesting in the streets is because this was an anecdotal example of something that occurs elsewhere as well. Chauvin doesn't have to stand on top of George Floyd and scream at the top of his lungs that the reason why he's doing what he's doing is because George Floyd is black in order for black people to see three white dudes on top of a black guy pleading for his life and say, hmm, seems like something is wrong here. And we have a lot of videos coming from all over the place to show that this is not an isolated event, right? The outrage comes from the fact that all of these cases 
are forcibly put into a vacuum by conservatives and then argued as just a case of the police, man or woman, being a, quote, bad apple, okay? But at some point, you have to look at the fact that black men and women are incarcerated at significantly higher rates in proportion to their population and say, hey, you know, seems like there's a bit of a problem here and some things aren't adding up. And I get many conservatives would say, well, that's just because black people commit more crimes. It's like, mm-hmm. Is that why? Like, do black people just naturally want to go out and commit more crimes? Do black people just wake up more often and be like, it'd be a good idea to rob people today? No, I don't think that's why, okay? And I don't think, and it's an extremely far jump to make, in a country that literally just ended a generation ago, government-mandated segregation, okay? There could be some problems within the current criminal justice system that would allow for racism to rear its head. Don't think that's a far jump. So with all of that, that is the end of our third story. We'll go ahead and hop on into our last segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile today, I'm going to have to plug it, is actually our next guest episode. Uh, It is going to be a lot of fun for you guys to listen to. It is an incredibly interesting guest. Uh, He has uh, a lot of very, very unique experiences that I think many of you will benefit hearing about and learning from. Uh, he's somebody that I've known for a very, very long time, uh, and it's 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 definitely was a lot of fun being able to sit down and catch up with him uh, and and talk for the first time in a while. And I think that many of you will really enjoy the conversation that we had. Um, so look out for that coming out next Tuesday. I'm really, really excited about this guest episode. Going to be the best one yet. <laughs> So with all that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by and for checking us out. As always, y'all, we are going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor. Thank you for listening to Split the Difference Podcast, written, recorded, and hosted by Austin Taylor. If you're interested in getting in touch with me on Instagram, you can find me at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and on my website at splitthedifference.com. Production for the intro and outro music done by Rosewood Records Recording Studio. If you're interested in booking or learning more about them, you can reach them on Facebook or Instagram at Rosewood Records SC or on their website, www.rosewoodrecordssc.com.